All right, we are going to be doing the fifth session now on the atonement. And for this one, I would like to start in Mark chapter 10. So admittedly, uh, there's not very clear lines between a lot of the sessions we've been doing because these problems are so multifaceted that there's going to be a lot of overlap. So a lot of what I say in this session will kind of backfill things I neglected to say earlier. And uh, so we're going to be talking specifically about the atonement, which is uh, one way of saying, like, how does, how does God reconcile us to himself on the cross? What, what, is, what is the cross actually accomplishing? And so uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 45 is the, the text. And this is uh, Jesus. If you have a, a Bible, this, uh, a red letter Bible, this will be in red letters. This is a quote from Jesus. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus telling us in Mark's gospel, why does he go to the cross and die? According to Mark, Jesus goes to the cross to die to ransom many from their sin. So uh, there's a lot of New Testament scripture we could point to. We could go to Romans. We could go all over the New Testament to try to fill in the picture. But if you'll permit me a, a chance to summarize a little bit of the biblical narrative, um, and then we can look at specific uh, scriptures uh, in a moment. But the big uh, question of how does God make us right with himself? How does Jesus make us right with the Father and the Son and the Spirit? How does Jesus do that? What's he doing on the cross? In order to answer that question, we have, to, we have to ask the question, what went wrong in the garden? So whatever was broken in the fall has to be reconciled at the cross. If, if it's broken in the fall, it's not reconciled in the cross. That doesn't actually answer the problem of a broken humanity. And so whatever went wrong in the fall partially, partly informs what is being accomplished in the atonement. So any, this is, uh, this is from uh, my uh, systematic theology professor, Dr. Drake, he says, whatever we think went wrong in the, in the fall, any atonement theory has to be able to make sense of that in, in its rearticulation of what Christ did on the cross. So he proposes a fourfold means of what, what was broken in the garden and that what Jesus is doing on the cross has to address all four of those pieces. So he says, firstly, Man's relationship with God is broken. So there's a vertical relationship that we have with God, which is broken in the fall. Now this is uh, pretty obvious if you read Genesis. Man is, man is kicked out of the garden. Why? Because they are no longer able to be before the presence of the Lord because they are naked and ashamed. So there's a vertical relationship between man and God, which has been severed. And that vertical relationship used to not be severed, right? Because God could walk with man in the garden prior. There's also a broken relationship between mankind. So Adam and Eve have enmity now with one another. They're going to struggle to get along. And in Genesis chapter 4, we see Cain and Abel can't get along. And Cain kills his brother Abel. This shows us that the fall doesn't just affect our relationship with God, but our, also our relationship with our fellow man. So that now I struggle with hatred and pride, and envy, and, and loathing of other people because of the fall. 
So the fall doesn't just affect our relationship with God, it also affects our relationship with one another. No doubt, a lot of the sin that you are acutely aware of in your own life is not always the sin that you do against God. Uh, that is true, and often that is a, something you become aware of. But the sins you are most acutely aware of, even, let's say, before you came to Christ, are often the sins that you commit interrelationally with other people. Those are the ones that are very obvious, very hard to hide, those kinds of sins. So that needs to be dealt with on the cross. There's also a relationship between man and creation, man and the world, which was right in the garden, which was broken in the fall. Uh, the text for this would be when God curses the ground and says, now you will toil to bring food forth from the ground. Or when a woman is to raise offspring and God says it will be with great pain that you raise offspring. So the, the work of man and woman is frustrated by the effects of the fall. And so any view of the atonement, setting things right, has to make right our relationship with work, our relationship with the environment, our relationship with the cosmos. And then also uh, man's conception of self is also broken in the fall. Because man is now a sinner, man feels the effect of sin and has a guilty conscience and, as it says in the garden, is ashamed of themselves, ashamed of their bodies, ashamed of their conduct. Uh, man can feel shame. Moses can feel shame about the fact that he does not speak well. So those are effects of the fall. And so any view of the atonement has to put all of those things back together. All of those things have to be reassembled. And so there's a bunch of different ways you can try to do that. In fact, um, if I remember correctly, in our systematic theology class, we spent two or three weeks of three-hour class sessions talking about these various theories of the atonement. And so there's a lot that we could get into. But for the sake of time, I'd like to focus on just two of them. And then if in the Q&A you have uh, more things you want to dive into, we can. Uh, the first theory of, uh, of the atonement is actually going to be a recap. Uh, so I should say that I'm going to give you two theories that I think are close but not quite right. And then I'm going to give you one that I think is a good theory of the atonement. So the, the, this first one is just a recap of what Tim talked about. It's the moral influence theory, right? So if we were to ask the question, what does the moral influence theory see as the problem in humanity? And what does it see as the solution? It, it totally addresses the human-to-human -human interaction part of sin, right? So human-to-human -human relationships are broken in the fall. So Jesus comes, dies on the cross to show us how we ought to love one another. He's our moral example. And that is supposed to set right our human, our interhuman relationships. So it solves that horizontal component of what sin has broken, but it doesn't at all address our self-conception. It doesn't at all address our conception with the world, uh, how we relate to our work. And it also has no category for a broken relationship with God. So it doesn't address any of those other three. It really only addresses the one, how we relate to other people. Uh, as Tim mentioned, there's uh, many proponents of this uh, going back to the 1100s in the church. Uh, if you were to ask someone who holds this view, why was Christ's death necessary? They would say humanity was ignorant of God's love and its need for repentance. What does Jesus' death accomplish? Christ's death is a demonstration of the love of God that motivates us towards repentance and following Christ's moral example of selfless love. So, that should all be reviewed from what Tim talked about. I'm just showing you how these categories kind of work themselves out. So what was broken, they would see that only as the human relationship is broken. 
And it's not so much that our relationship with God is broken, but we can't quite see how much God has loved us. So God has to show us how much he loves us so that then we can turn around and love other people. So in this, in this theory, we don't have a broken relationship with God so much as we have a lack of knowledge of God. If you were to think about this in another illustration, the problem of sin is not a problem of moral corruption. The, the problem of sin is really a lack of, lack of learning. So sin, what Jesus comes to do is to teach us. He is a teacher. We are students. We didn't have access to information before he came. But when he teaches us new information, we learn that information. And now we apply that information. So it wasn't a deficiency in our ability to carry out the information. It was simply a lack of access to the information. It would be like saying that the, the reason people sin is because they just don't know any better. So they sin. But if you were to teach them what goodness looks like, they wouldn't sin anymore. That's the moral influence theory. Okay. So there's another theory of the atonement, uh, one that is, I think, really close, but not quite right. And this one is called the ransom theory of the atonement. It's actually the text I wrote, uh, read for you from uh, Mark chapter 10, which says Jesus Christ came to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, the ransom theory of the atonement sees the brokenness that we have with one another, the brokenness we have with God, the brokenness we have with creation, and the brokenness we have with viewing ourselves. And it says all of that brokenness is because we have been transferred from the authority of God's care into the authority of the devil's care. So the devil is the prince of the power of the air. The reason we can't get along with one another or with ourselves or with God is because we are enslaved, owned by Satan and his evil forces. And so what Christ comes to do on the cross in the ransom theory is he comes to pay the debt to break us free from Satan's captivity and therefore reconcile us to one another, to God, to creation, and to ourselves. So that theory actually addresses all four of the, the things I said a, an atonement theory should address. The shortcoming of the ransom theory is it says that when Jesus is dying on the cross, he's paying the penalty of sin to Satan. But the implication there is that Satan is the one to whom the debt is owed. So while it appears to fulfill the vertical break problem of sin, it actually doesn't. Because the problem with sin in the garden and the vertical break that exists between humanity and God is, is not that now God can't own humanity anymore because Satan now owns humanity. The, the problem with that vertical break is God is a holy God and now humanity is an unholy people. So now they can't exist together. So the ransom theory doesn't actually address the holiness aspect of God as a problem for sin. It really just says, well, in sin, we are in Satan's captivity. We need to be liberated from, from that. But it's actually a pretty close to good theory. And actually, I think of the historical theories of the atonement, it's, it's really close. It's really good, but not quite there. Uh, and then uh, I'm going to give one more, which I think is the best theory of the atonement. And this theory is called the penal substitutionary atonement theory. And no doubt, if you've been a Christian in, in discussions where this exists, you've probably heard that term, the penal substitutionary atonement. So in penal substitutionary atonement, uh, it recognizes all those broken categories. And what penal substitutionary atonement says is that the way all those things are put back together is that Christ dies instead of us, but not because Satan owned us and we are in captivity to Satan, 
but because we were unholy before a holy God who had the right justice to punish us. So God actually had a case against us and Jesus Christ swaps into our place. So he is punished in place of us. The wrath of God is satisfied upon him and he gives to us his righteousness that he merits and he then allows us to live as new creations living in his perfection. That's the penal substitutionary atonement theory. If you were asked the question, why was Christ's death necessary according to this theory? It would say that humanity has sinned and by God's justice deserves punishment and the separation from God. So it's not a problem of Satan owning humanity. It's a problem of God justly having a case against humanity. And if you were asked the question, why, what does Jesus' death accomplish? What does it put right? Christ's death takes the penalty of death upon himself as a propitiation, as a wrath bearer, and gives to us his righteousness. So he swaps in our place, gives us his righteousness. And so what that theory does is it reconciles, it reconciles human to human because it says the problem with the human-human relationship was the sin that we had against God. Because Christ gives us his righteousness, we now have the human-to-human problem solved. Because God created us in his image, and because he died for us to show how much he loves us, we should have self-love. We should love ourselves, not in the way the world would say we love ourselves, but in a right biblical way of valuing ourselves. We have a restored relationship with the creation, the cosmos, because when Christ dies uh, and, and substitutes for us, the wrath of God, which is for sin, is dealt with in Christ. And so the, the curse of sin has been broken. And now the, that effect of sin, even on the cosmos itself, is being liberated by Christ's work, ultimately in glory to be finally done away with. And it, and it reconciles the vertical relationship because it actually acknowledges the real problem that existed in that vertical relationship, holiness and unholiness, now actually becomes we are holy because we have the very righteousness of Christ upon us so that we're now right with God in a pure sense. So that, that theory, uh, legal penal substitutionary atonement theory, really is, I would say, the hallmark of the Reformation theologians. So you can find instances in the early church, in church history, where church fathers and early church theologians quote lines that sound very penal substitutionary-esque, but they never go on to articulate a full-orbed theory about how they put it all together. But then the later theologians, uh, Luther and, and Calvin and Zwingli and, and the rest, they come along and they develop these early church fathers' thoughts, kind of stringing together the corpus, and they say, this is really what we think is happening in the New Testament when Christ dies. So that when, in Mark chapter 10, he's, Mark is saying Christ dies as a ransom, yes, Christ dies as a ransom, but the ransom is paid to the Father because that's to whom the debt is owed. Uh, and we can affirm with Romans uh, chapter 6, if you will turn there briefly, Romans chapter 6, verse 23. It says, uh, verse you should, uh, you would be familiar with uh, if you grew up uh, in church learning uh, one-off Bible verses here and there. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it says that sin merits death. Christ dies in our place, dying the death that we deserve. And then he offers us his life, his eternal life, which we then walk in. So he swaps out 
in our place. So uh, this, is, this is the theory of the atonement that is uh, both reformed and ultimately it's the theory of the atonement that modern evangelicals would, would go with. We say this is the best definition of what is happening on the cross, how Christ is reconciling us to himself. And what's funny is the legal penal substitutionary atonement theory doesn't deny all aspects of, of any of the other theories, right? Because some of those other theories actually have merit to them, right? In penal substitutionary atonement, Christ can still be morally exemplary for how we ought to live. In penal substitutionary atonement, Christ can still ransom us from sin's grasp. But it, it, it views the conception, I think rightly, in, a, in, in our broken relationship with God as kind of the dominant emphasis of what sin broke and what sin puts back, what has to be put back together on the cross. One of the implications of all of this is that if our unholiness has been dealt with on the cross by Christ, he gives us new life in his resurrection, well, now we ought to walk in that newness of life as new creations. So as Christians, the penal substitution of atonement doesn't just say that Christ dies for our sins, but it also says that Christ uh, gives to us his righteousness, gives to us his spirit, and causes us to walk in obedience with God. So that it doesn't just say, hey, sin was broken and we dealt with it, but it also said, and now here's an active way to obey the God whom you serve. So it, it, I think it does a whole lot for reconciling us uh, back together with one another and with God. And so uh, there's many more theories we could talk about, much more to say on this uh, issue. Um, there's probably only one more thing I'd like to maybe deal with on the general category of the atonement. Um, and that would be to talk a little bit about um, where the atonement, what are the, what are the boundaries of true Christianity and progressive Christianity in, in regards to the atonement. So if someone doesn't believe in penal substitutionary atonement, uh, that does not automatically make them a progressive Christian. The hallmark of a progressive Christian's rejection of penal substitutionary atonement would be a rejection on the grounds that it was morally wrong for God to have done that. So, so uh, for instance, there are Catholic, Catholics who would reject penal substitutionary atonement in favor of a different theory, but they don't object to it on God's moral grounds as a progressive Christian would. They object to it for different reasons. The progressive Christian's objection to penal substitutionary atonement is it would be morally wrong for God to punish Jesus uh, for a crime he didn't commit. God punishes Jesus. When God is all-powerful, he could just wipe our sins away and he wouldn't have to punish anyone. So it's a, it's a moral uh, problem for God to punish Christ on the cross for sin. The shortcoming of that, the shortcoming of that objection, is it fails to recognize the active participation of Christ in both his suffering and the judgment on sin that happened on the cross. Something that we often talk about is that God is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit act together. And so when Jesus is suffering on the cross and dying, it is the Father, Son, and Spirit together who are enacting the punishment of sin on the cross. So it is not as though Jesus is suffering at the hands of the Father as an unwilling participant, as a child abuse situation would be, but actually Jesus is both an active, in active submission to the Father and an active participant in the pouring out of the wrath on the cross because the triune God works together to put right the broken world. So the, the progressive Christian's objection to penal substitutionary atonement is really a failure to understand how the Trinity works in the atonement. 
It's a short-sightedness. It's, very, it's a very human way of looking at the relationship between the father and son and trying to put them at odds against one another. It conceives of God in very human terms and ultimately then fails to understand how God works in redemption. So with that, let me pray, and then we can get into discussion. Father, we thank you for your wonderful sacrificial death on our behalf, with which, it, uh, with which you have purchased for us all righteousness, perfect obedience, perfect faithfulness, so that there's no burden on us to do anything different, to, to now behave a certain way or else we'll lose our salvation. But rather, your finished work upon the cross has merited for, merited for us a place of eternal security before your throne. Lord, we are thankful for that amazing gift, freely given, which is undeserved for us. And Lord, we confess that it is a beautiful mystery and one that we often fail to appreciate. We pray that you would give it uh, to us fresh and new as we even reason about it now and consider the implications of your gift of mercy to us. We pray this together in your name. Amen.